about that. If you have your Bible, would you please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. When you got it, say so. And it says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not and there, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better. Nor, if we do not eat, are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Father, we are so, so grateful for the beautiful time that we have had singing in your presence, being reminded of the firmness of the foundation upon which we stand in Christ, being reminded that the battle that we fight in our lives daily, the struggles that are real and can be consuming, that those things pale in comparison to your greatness, your power, and your fidelity towards us. We thank you for this, God. And we ask in this moment that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and compel our hearts to turn more toward you at the hearing of your word. May our worship not cease, but may it continue as we focus in on truth, as we focus in on what you are saying. I pray for myself that you would give me words of wisdom that are guided by you, Holy Spirit, not my words, but your words change lives. And so may your voice be heard, Lord. May I decrease that you would increase, and may you be glorified in us as we hear your truth and live it. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. 
If you do not have an outline, you can raise your hands, and the ushers do have some outlines left over, and so they will be able to help you out and get you uh, an outline so that way you're able to follow along in the introduction. We want to be sure that you are able to do that, take some notes, and hopefully be able to take this home with you and apply these truths to your life. And so we are continuing in our church function series, and we are looking at this particular topic. Today, I want to talk about Conscience sensitivity, conscience sensitivity, being sensitive to the conscience. If you look at your outline, one of the greatest battles in our day is our idolatry. One of the greatest battles that we have in our day is that of our idolatry. Whether we realize it or not, whether we recognize it or not, we do struggle with idolatry in a big way. And this is not just other people, this is us. Idolatry is a real thing. It's something that we struggle with. The Apostle Paul is addressing this issue. And just so to give you some context in this, Paul, I love him. And I don't just love him because he's the Apostle. I don't just love him because he's the writer of most of the New Testament. I don't just love him because he loves run-on sentences like I do. Hallelujah. But I love him because he gives long answers like I do, right? Like, have you ever asked somebody a question and, you know, and, and you ask him, like, hey, let me ask you this. And, and, and you went to three different places before you actually got the answer. Anybody have that conversation? Don't be, don't be thinking about your conversation with me. Come on now. I remember my mom, when I was growing up, she used to tell me, I would be telling her something and she would look at me and, and then her eyes would glaze over and she'd be like, Jason, get to the point. I was, I was a preacher in training. That's what was happening. She didn't realize it at the time, but nonetheless, that's what it was. But, but, but I love Paul. And so the, way that the, the reason why I bring this up is because over the next three chapters, he's actually dealing with this same question. In three chapters, he, he could just give them, he, and, and to me, when I think about it, and, you, and you'll see this when I get into the first point here, he could have just jumped into Acts chapter 15 and just sealed the deal, wrote like two lines, and then said, let's move on to the next question. But he doesn't do that. He decides that he is going to elaborate and he is going to expound on this topic of idolatry. And so we have to realize that in our day, in our culture, we do deal with idolatry. Now, while it is much different than the times of Jesus and the apostles, idolatry is a real thing today. In those days before Christ, and as you read throughout the scriptures, they were sacrificing babies to Moloch. They were worshiping in the, in the temples of Baal, and they were engaging in sexual immorality with the temple prostitutes, and that was all part of their worship. It was part of their worship of, uh, of these false deities and these false gods. They were cutting themselves in order to get the attention and the affection of these false gods. This was something that was happening. So you would think today we don't really see that here, so we don't really have an idolatry problem. No, the devil is a liar. See, because our idolatry comes in the, in the package and in the form of, 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 of self, right? Our, our idolatry issues are, 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 are things like sex, right? We can worship that. We talked about this when we were dealing with marriage, but, but we, can become, we can become overly obsessed with that. Those things can become our idols. We can become obsessed with money and come on now. We all want money, right? We, we, we all need money for things, and so there's nothing wrong with that. It's not evil in and of itself, but the thing that we should worship God with, we begin to worship. That's what an idol is. 
God, God means for us to worship God with our families, but our families can become idols. And, 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 and so, you know, our desire for success can become an idol. Even, come on now, even our knowledge of the truth of the Bible, that can become an idol. How do you know if you're struggling with idolatry? Well, you probably just felt uncomfortable when I mentioned some of those things, and that's how you know you're struggling with idolatry. Because you know what we do with our idols? We defend them. When the preacher says something that, that oh, no, that, that's, not, that's not an idol. Oh, you better check yourself because that probably is an idol. That probably is something that you're running after. And can I tell you what I think is the greatest idol within our day? It is our own opinions. Oh. See, something happened when we, you know, we, 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 it started out like with this place called MySpace, right? And, th- and that was a place that I was like old school, right? I didn't even have a MySpace deal until it was already like out of fashion. And then, you know, at that point, Facebook was the, was the thing. And then, you know, you move on, you have Instagram, and then you have TikTok. And I don't even know what else you have because I don't care. I've stopped at Instagram. I'm good right there. But what happened in these spaces is you have people who are expressing their opinions on whatever the topic is. And you know how they measure the validity of their opinion? By how many likes they got. It's, 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 not, on, it's not on is your opinion in truth, is it, is it rooted in truth. No, no, no. It's everybody agrees with me, so I must be right. See, we struggle with this thing called our opinion. We think we're right. We think, you know, somebody told us that, you know, we, we have an opinion. We should express that opinion. Hmm. I don't know if that's always a good thing. Especially when it's opinions that are unchecked. When it's opinions that, 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 that nobody has a right. Well, that's just my opinion. That's just my truth. You, you, see, you see what I'm talking about, right? You, you don't think that that happens in the church, though, huh? Let me, let, let, me, let, let me help you out. Ready? Y'all, y'all got your seatbelts on, right? You see where we're going today, don't you? Core Faith Church, vision carriers. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and tell me how, you, how many of you have been through Core Faith 101. But if you've been through Core Faith 101, you learned that our vision is what? To please the Lord. Hallelujah. That is our goal. Y'all agree with that. Amen? That's the goal. That, that, that's the goal of every believer. That's the goal of every person's heart. But then you get through the, from the part of vision, right, we want to please the Lord in everything we do. So now we get to the part of mission, right, which is every week we say this together. And listen, I'm impressed with you guys. You guys need to give yourselves a hand. Give yourself a hand real quick before I say anything else. You guys, listen, you guys didn't even have the prompts up there, and you knew the words. We are committed to loving God. We are committed to growing together. We are committed to serving. We are committed to reaching others. Are you really? Check this out. Our church is committed to loving God, growing in our relationship with him. It's easy to fabricate that, and I hate to, I hate to bust your bubble. It's easy to fake that. It's it's easy to seem like you love God while we're together. But you know what the next part of our commitment is? Y'all know it. Growing together. Oh, nobody wants to repeat that now. So the question is, are you really committed to growing together? Because here's the thing. We teach Core Faith 101. 
We're committed to loving God. This is how we measure your love for God, right? We, we, we give you a list of things. Then we go to the next thing. We are committed to growing together. And you said, yes, amen. I, lo I love the idea. Let me ask you a question. Have you been through Rooted? Oh, no, I don't really need that. Wait a second. Wait, you're committed to growing together. Are you in a core connect life group? Do you meet weekly with brothers and sisters? Oh, it's quiet up in here. And I would hear you good because the echo in here is real good. We're committed to growing together. We're committed to loving God. Hold on a second. Every Wednesday night, guess what happens? We pray together. And you know what your opinion does for you? Your opinion excuses you, uh, I got something else to do. Idolatry. I, I know. I know it's rough when we deal with our idols, especially the idol of our opinion. We're committed to. I'll get off of that because some of y'all like, oh my goodness, this is true though. It's our opinion because you said you're a vision carrier. You said core faith is your church. You said that's what you said. But we make those decisions, don't we? Our opinion is more important than what the mission is. We're committed to serving. Are you committed to serving? Are you serving somewhere? Or do you have other things to do? Are there other things that are more important for you to do? You got other things that are happening in your life that get in the way. And listen, let me, let, let me pause for a moment because I got to show grace, right? I understand there's moments. I understand there's times, right, that things happen, right? Y'all know that I'm still, I am still trying to get my master's. You know why? Because I either got to, like, stop doing everything else or I got to focus over here. I get, listen, I get it. There's some moments that you're going to have to pull back. I get that. But in general, in general, core faith is your church. Are you serving? Let's go to the last one. We are committed to reaching others. Let me just ask you a question. When was the last time? That you shared your faith with someone. When was the last time you even thought about, man, maybe that person needs Jesus? This is just the intro, y'all. Matter of fact, this is only half of the intro. I've still got a whole nother sentence here to work through. But here, here's the reality we have our opinions. That matter more to us than, hey, this is the mission. This is what we're supposed to be about. This is, listen, this is not about core faith. This is about, you, you know why we have this? You know why this matters, church? Because you and I are disciples of Jesus. And what we know is that disciples don't just grow by Sunday attendance. Disciples don't grow into maturity just doing the loving God thing because we have to grow in relationship with others. We have to grow in our service unto the Lord, and we have to grow by sharing that faith with a world that needs Jesus. That's called being a disciple. It's not just an opinion, your opinion versus mine, your opinion versus our leadership. Listen, this is scripture. We're talking about how do we flesh this out. Listen, it's going to be different in every context. You go back to that context, man, some of y'all could could, couldn't have even passed, passed the mustard in any way, shape. They met daily, glory to God. <laughs> not a couple times a week. They met daily in the temple and went from house to house. Come on now. That's a lot, right? You, you, you Americans up in here are like, man. 
And so, and so, I'll move on because I want to get through this. I got 29 minutes, glory to God. You see, idolatry is a real thing that we struggle with. And I think that that's the reason why the Apostle Paul spends three chapters dealing with this question. Because it is something, in their context, there was temples of idol worship that they were walking by every day where sacrifices were happening all the time. And the question of eating food sacrificed to idols came up. Because what? Because they lived in a context, and, and, and I, I didn't point this out because there was 40 verses and a lot to go through last week. But when the, the, in, in that chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul is writing and he's talking about one of the reasons, he said because of the distress of the time, it would be good, you know, to stay single or, you know, to go ahead and marry either way well the distressful thing was that there was a lot of famine that was going on there and in that particular time what was happening with them is that they had there's two types of meat that were there there were the meats that were used in worship and sacrifice that were much cheaper than the meats that were just purely somebody raised them killed them and then was selling them in the market so you had two options you had the organic option come on now or you had just the, you know, whatever, every other, other option. And the question was, uh, is, is, but the only thing was, this option was like, hey, this has been sacrificed to a deity. Is this wrong for us? Is this a problem? And so they had that going on. That was part of what was going on in their minds. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But here's the thing. I want to wrap up this last point here. It is idolatry is where you get the consumerism that plagues the church. That's, that, that's the fruit of our idolatry is where we pick and we choose. We, we, we are consumers first, not servants. It's about what we can get, not about what we can give. I'll give as long as I get good enough. I, I'll contribute as long as I'm receiving, right? As long as I'm being fed, hallelujah. Because, you know, that's, that's how you, you, you got to get fed on Sunday. If the, if the pastor don't come with a, with a word that, that, that feeds my spirit. We are consumers. How long is the service? You know, I, you guys, you, you're, you're great. You know, I, I preach 55 minutes every week and you keep coming back. We could have we continued singing and, and worship for another 30 minutes, and you would still let me get up here and preach for 55 minutes. Praise the Lord. I love you guys. You guys are great in that. But the thing is, we, we, we think about that. You, you may not be, but others are, are, are overly concerned with, wait a second, we got we to get, get out of church. We got to beat that other church out so we can get to the buffet first. Come on now. We, we, we have this consumerism that is, that is plaguing the church. We have taught people to be consumers rather than contributors, rather than being disciples. The idolatry is the reason why the prosperity gospel thrives in most places it goes. Think about that for a moment. You could go to the most poverty-stricken areas and you start preaching this gospel that, that God is going to bless you if you sacrifice and all of this. And all of a sudden, the people who need hear that and they're like, hey, let's start sacrificing in order to be able to get more from God. See, this is the reason, idolatry is the reason why so many marriages end in divorce because it's about me. 
It's not about the one we made a covenant before or the one I made a covenant to, but it's about me and wants my needs the same way that if the pastor's not preaching a messages or messages that are stirring you and moving you, the same way you're like, man, I, I don't know, man, I, 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 I can't stay there. There, my, my spouse isn't treating me like I want to be treated. My, you know, my, 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 my spouse isn't loving me like I need to be loved, you know. And then we are supposed to imitate Christ in everything. And when we suffer for his namesake, I want you to think about this. Whenever you go through hardship, whenever you go through difficulty, whenever you go through whatever it is that you go through, as we sung our songs today, let those words that we sung about remind you, man, my Savior died in my place. My Savior suffered in my place. My, and, and he didn't just suffer in my place then, but I continue to offend him now. I continue to, I continue to earn the need for forgiveness. You know what he doesn't do? He didn't turn my back on me and say, man, you're garbage. You're trash. I'm done with you. You've said sorry too many times. That isn't what he does. Our Savior offers us forgiveness because of his great mercy. Here's what I want you to think about this morning, if I haven't already given you a lot to think about. When we're talking about idolatry, when you sit on the throne of your heart, others don't matter because God doesn't matter. When you sit on the throne of your heart, when you are the, are the one who runs your life, others don't matter because God doesn't matter. You see, when we allow ourselves to humble ourselves before God, when we, when we humble ourselves and say, God, I don't want to be Lord, you're Lord. I'm not Lord. I'm not God. You are God. See, when we do that, we begin to act differently. And you know what we start to do? We start to care about other people. That's what Paul's point is in this first part of this answer to the question on idolatry. It's not about you. It's about him. And so the first point I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, love must temper our application of truth. Love must temper our application of truth. Truth. Now, these first three verses here, I want to read them in a different translation just so you can get a little feel for it. So this is the New Living Translation, and this is what it says. It says, now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. You hear those words? The apostle is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's letting them know, hey, about this issue of idolatry, we all have knowledge. We all know these things that I'm going to talk about in a moment. He's like, however, you need to know something. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. You can get puffed up because of your knowledge. You can get puffed up because of how much you know. But is your love overflowing into the edification and the building up of the church? So here's the thing. According to the Quran, you and I are the people of the book. You know, you know the Quran talks about us, right? 
The Quran speaks, it actually, it actually tells, you know, it tells their, the followers and the believers of Islam that we are the people of the book because we are people who believe in the Old Testament. And so they're pointed to us to ask us certain questions and things of that nature. Now, here's the thing. We are rightfully so called the people of the book because we get our marching orders from an inspired volume broken down actually into 66 books, and this is known as the Bible. Here's the thing. If we are not careful, we can become students of truth who forget this, that when we study the scriptures, we are not solely studying principles, precepts, commands, and promises, but we are studying, rather, we are engaging with a person. We can, we can become so intellectual about our study of the Word of God. We can, be some, we, we can become so, 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 so in-depth and, and, and become so overwhelmed with, with all of the different things, learning the, the, the original languages. All of those things are important, by the way. I, I, when, when I study to preach, I look into original languages. What does this word mean? What does that word mean? How is this sentence structure done? All of those things are important. We, we can dig in and learn so much of the context of when this was written, what was going on, you know, what, what was happening when he was talking about this, uh, this idolatrous stuff, why does this matter so much? We can do all of that and we can miss, we can miss the fact that when I'm standing in his presence, when I'm in his word, I am learning something not just about a principle, but I'm learning about a person. I'm engaging with a person. I'm not just learning the answer to someone's question. I'm learning who the God is that I love, who the God is that I serve, who the God is that I'm talking to others. I'm getting to know him by these love letters that he sent to me. Not, not, not because every word in there is about love, but because every word is there is sent because he loves us. Every word is sent to instruct us and guide us and hopefully point us to himself. Bring us closer into a relationship with him. Again, this shouldn't just be an academic exercise. And again, I said this earlier, it would seem easy for the Apostle Paul to have simply quoted Acts chapter 15. If you go to Acts chapter 15, which you don't have to do right now, that was the first council that we see in the scriptures that happens with the New Testament church. And they're there asking the question, do the Gentile believers, that would be you and I, because we're not Jewish by, by our birth. If you're not Jewish by birth, then that would make you a Gentile believer. And so do these Gentile believers who are now coming to faith in Christ, do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to become followers of the Old Testament laws? Do they, do they need to do that? And the apostles and, and, and the elders and, and the Holy Spirit that was present there decided no. And one of the things they said to stay away from the blood, to stay away from those things sacrificed to idols. So it seemed like the easy answer is, hey, let me just come back and let me just say, no, the apostle said this over here, forget it. That's not what Paul does. You know, you, you know what Paul does? Paul deals with the first idol, the knowledge that puffs you up. Before, in, in, in chapter 10, you're going to see he's going to address the whole issue with the, with the idols and all of that. But, but here in chapter 8, he's, he deals with the first, knowledge puffs up. See, because there were people who were in Corinth and how they were feeling was what? They were like, hey, you know what? There's nothing, there's, there's nothing going on with these idols. He, they, 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 they knew that there was nothing to these, these, these idols. They, they knew that God was the one true God. They had believed the teachings of the Apostle Paul. They had believed that, that, that truth. And so they had been liberated of superstitions and things like that. And yet they were still, they, 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 were, they were being puffed up rather than wanting to build their brothers and sisters up 
They were more concerned about themselves. They were more concerned about their comfort. They were more concerned. Maybe, again, I told you this was a thing of economics. They were more concerned about their pocketbook and, and, and what they had. And, these, and, 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 and the majority of the people that were, that were dealing with this, they weren't rich. So they didn't have like a bunch of money. So they were counting pennies, so to speak, and, and, and making sure they can eat. And so, again, you have these foods that have been sacrificed to idols that have been left over from the sacrifices. We can partake of those for much less than what we have to do for these things that are organic over here, right? These things that are not contaminated. These things that are, that, that are holy, and so they are, are but, but, but there's this knowledge that they have. And so what is it? The Christian ethic. What is the Christian ethic? The Christian ethic is love. It's not knowledge. It's not about how much we know. It's, 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 it's not about how much we, we understand. The Christian ethic is about love from God, love for God, and love to others. There's a, there, there, there's a man of God in here. He's writing a trilogy that goes along with that. The God who loves you. He has that book. He's already written it. He's given me the privilege to, to, to read this second one, How to Love the God Who Loves You. And then he's going to write one about how we love the people that God loves. That's, that's Pastor Rod, if you're wondering. The Christian ethic, the thing that should move us is not so much because we know so much, but it's because we have been dominated and overwhelmed by the love of God. And God's love moves us to love others. God, God's love moves us to care for others and be concerned about them. Here's the thing. You and I should be a knowledgeable people of the truth. Paul tells, tells his, his, his son in the faith that he should be a student who rightly divides the word of truth. And, and, and here's the thing. We should know what is right, what is wrong in the scriptures. But here's the thing. We need to be governed by grace. And everything that we do, especially in interaction with our brothers and sisters, must be tempered by love. Must be tempered by love. The second thing I'd ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, our convictions... Oh, come on, this room echoes better than that. Our convictions, there we go, should be rooted in truth, not superstition. Our convictions should be rooted in the truth, not superstitions. Verse 4, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, he goes back after he addresses this, he says, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. And so here's the thing. He's saying while there are superstitious beliefs like a dead animal is somehow contaminated by a God who does not exist, he's saying that's not true. He's saying there is one true God. He is greater than any other worship being. The Apostle Paul, he will address, as I said in chapter 10, the dangers of engaging in this. But in this chapter, he's dealing with plain fact. And what is the fact that he's dealing with? He is saying demons don't contaminate the dead carcasses of animals, and we don't become contaminated by eating those meats. That's what he's saying. He's addressing this. He's letting us know that this is the truth. This is where our conviction should be. Why does he do this? Because here's the thing. Even though there's two people in, the, in, in, this, in this context that he's dealing with, people with a stronger conscience and people with a weaker conscience. And what, and what he is saying is there are some who have knowledge of idols and their, and their conscience doesn't allow them to eat those foods sacrificed to idols because they're like, man, how can a Christian eat these foods sacrificed? There's no way I can contaminate myself by engaging in that. Am I somehow engaging in the worship of idols? Their conscience is weak. Paul is not, what, what he's not doing is he's not saying they're right. He's simply saying their conscience is weak. 
He's simply saying that their convictions have not been fully developed by the truth. Here's what we have to understand. What, 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 what Paul is telling us is that he wants our conscience to be developed. And I'm going to talk about that more in the third point here because that's how we grow. That's how we grow into maturity. Our conscience is developed by the truth. But right now he's dealing with plain facts, verse 5 through 6. He says, for even if, if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet there is, yet for us believers, there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. The fact is this, there is no God. This is what Paul, what, he, what Paul is trying to do here. The Apostle Paul is trying to instruct the people with the weaker conscience that the truth is that there is no other God beside our God. That, that these, these idols are nothing and they have no power. That, that, that's what Paul is trying to get at in his communication here. These idols don't have any power. These verses, and when you actually look at this, what, what these verses, they, they take the form of an early catechism, right? It, it is an early way of question and answer where they teach scripture. We don't, at Core Faith, we don't really talk much about catechism, but catechism is a good thing. It's something that you probably do already. You may not call it formally catechism, but you teach scriptures, you ask questions, right? You don't have a paper or anything like that, maybe, that you're saying, okay, these are the answers, and then I'm going to go ahead and, and, you know, present you before the church. Maybe we should, but here's the thing. The point is, this would take form of, of, of that and why do I say that? Because what, what, what is happening here is that this, this hymn of praise is making the Father and Christ one. It's emphasizing the singularity of the one true God. This hymn of praise attributes similar qualities to both the Father and the Son. And this is what it's saying, both of those lines there. All things have their origin in God. The Father and God the Son who are, and we, we're Trinitarians, right? We believe in the triune God, one God, three different beings, something that blows our minds. Praise the Lord. That's what we should do when we think about that. But nonetheless, he is attributing these same attributes to both of them. Simply put, the God of Christianity so overshadows all others who may be called gods or lords that those others are entirely insignificant. Church, this is our God. No matter what false religion is there, no matter what false worship is going on in our culture, no matter what people are bowing to, no matter what powers or authorities are there, our God is greater. Our God is more powerful. Our God is the only one true God and makes all of those other gods insignificant by comparison. In the end, here's the thing. We should be seeking to grow into the unity of the faith. Again, those with the stronger conscience, those with the weaker conscience. What's the goal? The goal is to grow into maturity in Christ. The goal is to grow up in our faith. The goal is to become more like him in practice, but we're not going to become more like him in practice until we become more like him in revelation. We become more like him in revelation as he reveals himself, as he illuminates his word, as he shows himself to us. That's how we become more like him. That's how we grow 
in our faith. That's how we grow in our maturity. That should be the goal for each and every one of us. And I want to say this before we, as, as, as we, before we get into the next point. Our goals should be growing into the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. That is what maturity is. Whether you are a stronger or weaker Christian in conscience, our faith, hear me please, must be built on fact, not fiction. Our faith must be built on truth, not superstition. Our faith must be built in God's wisdom, not in our feelings or our opinions. Our faith is not built in the opinion of someone else. Our faith is built in the truth of God's word. And here's what we have to remember is this, because I think this is so important. A stronger conscience must never leave you feeling okay to sin. If your conscience leaves you okay to sin, there's a problem. We'll talk about that at the end of point three. Third thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, we shouldn't impose our conscience upon others. We shouldn't impose our conscience upon others. What our conscience allows us, we shouldn't impose that on someone else. We shouldn't expect them to have the same conscience. If you are the weaker Christian, right, you shouldn't be judging the one who has a stronger conscience in a particular area. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be looking down on them. That's sinful. The same thing if you have a stronger conscience and you, and, and you see this weaker conscience Christian, everything is offensive, everything is potentially sin, you shouldn't be looking down on them. The goal is unity in the faith. So what is your conscience? Let's talk about your conscience for a moment. Verse 7, let's look at what verse 7 says. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. So the knowledge that the Apostle Paul just shared is the foundation for the reason why some in, in Corinth were saying, hey, man, we can eat whatever. He said that's true. But that knowledge is not in everyone. Because everybody hasn't come to the same place in faith. He says there is not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now, eating it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So if my conscience, and I believe it's in Romans where Paul says anything that is not, that, that, that is not done in faith is sin, if I do something doubting, stop. Because I literally defile myself. Literally, that word defiled means to, you know, to make someone unholy for the act of worship. It's, it, it does damage to you. Why? Let's talk about what the conscience is really quick. The word conscience simply means to know with. The word conscience is actually used 32 times in the New Testament. And, and conscience is that internal court where our actions are judged and are either approved or condemned. If you're taking notes, you can write down Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and verse 15. The apostle Paul is writing there, and as he is speaking to the, the Romans about, about, about uh, faith, and he's talking about sin, as he's communicating there, he talks about Gentiles who are actually obeying the law of God, even though they don't have the law of God. And then he talks about their conscience bearing witness, either accusing them or excusing them. Your conscience is the thing that, that, that God has wired everybody. Now hear me, hear me now, because I just talked about our commitment to reaching others. I want you to know this. Every human being walking planet Earth has been wired this way. Whether they ignore it or not, that's, that, that's not the question. 
But every one of them has something inside of them that is like, that's wrong, this is right. Now you can sear your conscience by ignoring this is wrong and I keep doing it. This is the danger. And this is, this is what Paul, I believe, is getting at here when he is communicating to them saying, hey, don't violate your conscience. Don't, don't call them to violate their conscience. They become defiled because then they start coming before God, the one true God, in worship. And they, and, and they feel funny because, they've man, I, I've engaged in this idolatry. I've engaged in this thing that I feel like I shouldn't be engaging in. I hope you're connecting the dots here, right? Like, like living my life and there's certain, I shouldn't be watching those programs. But man, my pastor friend, he's like, you know, just rated R, rated whatever, and he, it doesn't seem to bother him. Now, I'm not, I'm not justifying rated R movies, are you here? But what I'm saying is, we live in this moment where there's things that we, we feel, man, I, I don't feel comfortable with this. Listen, if you don't feel comfortable with this, here's what you need to do. Look at the scriptures. What do the scriptures say about what you're feeling discomfort about? Is it the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Is it your conscience that is aligning with God? Because the point is in Romans chapter 2 is that the law of God has been written on the hearts of all of creation and your conscience is there calling, calling strikes and fouls and home runs and saying this is good, this is bad. This is what is going on inside of us. That's what our conscience does. That's why you don't violate it. Because you will end up hindering yourself from being able to worship. So conscience, understand this, please understand this. Conscience, your conscience is not the law. Are you here? That's why I can't regulate your life by my conscience, and you can't regulate my life by your conscience. Because our conscience is not the law. Where is God's law? God's word. God's word is God's law. It bears, your conscience bears witness to God's moral law. But here's the important thing in all of this, is that your conscience depends on knowledge. The more you dig into the scriptures, the more you start to know what is true and what is false. The more you start to realize, wait, this is right and this is wrong. This is not just my feelings. This is not just an opinion. This is the truth of God's word. And then we have this thing that we have to say, okay, there are some things in our lives that are true. 100%, and we cannot negate them. We cannot argue about them. We have to accept them as true. Give you an example. Lying is wrong always, period. Even when your spouse comes to you and says, hey, babe, how do I look? Oh, hold up, Bishop. I thought I was, I thought I was, no, you're not. Babe, I love you. You look beautiful to me no matter what. However... trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you honor God and help your spouse. Amen. It is never okay to lie. Never. There's no little white lies. The Bible says we should not bear false witness. That means that we are bound by that law. Now, someone may have a conviction that you know what? I 
am not going to support certain establishments because my conviction is such. I'm going to take it, I'm, I'll take it way back. When we, when we first uh, in church, I remember getting a list of all of the things that Procter and Gamble sold. That's a long list. And because of their affiliations and the places where they donated money, we were encouraged to not use Procter and Gamble products. That's a conviction, not a commandment. And if your conviction is that, hey, I feel like this. You know what? We had a guy coming to our church years ago. And this is amazing to me because now all this stuff is coming out now. But we had this, this pastor evangelist come to our church. He preached, uh, I mean, literally like hours on the, the subject of the, of the perversion that is there with, within Disney. I mean, he gave you videos. He showed you all kind of stuff and was like, man, this place is demonic. I'm, I'm, giving, you, I'm giving you what he was saying. Now, all of a sudden, you hear them coming out talking about their whole agenda. Guess what? 20 years ago, I heard about that. That's nothing new. And God, and listen to me now, God was sending someone with, I believe, a prophetic voice, letting the church know, don't allow Disney to indoctrinate your kids. Don't allow them to be the ones who teach them morality. I know you love Little Mermaid. I know you love Enchanted. I know you love all of these cute stories and whatever it is you. But listen, hold on a second. Don't let those things raise your kids. But again, your conscience may be that, hey, I'm going to go to Disney and I'm going to take that picture right in front of the castle and that's what's up. I feel no conviction. That's your conscience, not mine. That's, that's where you land, not me. And again, I'm saying not me because I might take a picture in front of the castle. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying, right? A weaker conscience can't govern everything. A stronger conscience can't govern every, everything. Truth governs everything. Scripture governs everything. And my convictions about Disney, my convictions about Procter & Gamble, my convictions, you go down the list, my convictions about television, my convictions about certain programs, my convictions about certain music, my convictions should not be developed well. I don't feel bad. I don't care how you feel. Does the truth point you in a different direction? Because if the truth says, man, that's a neutral thing, you got to stop tripping on that then you know what you need to stop tripping on that. But if, but, but if the truth of Scripture says, man, that's unholy, don't contaminate yourself, you know what you need to do? Humble yourself and say, wait a second, we got that one wrong. Verses 8 through 11. But food does not commend us to God, nor or for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you, now listen, what Paul does here is he's giving an example of something that could potentially happen in their context. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish 
for whom Christ died? Now, wait a second. Paul, Paul is using some intense verbiage here. And he's saying, man, should your weaker brother perish because you're so free? Should your, should your weaker brother die because you are so, so liberated? Because you know so much truth and, and you know that these things don't defile, these things don't make you unholy. Should your brother or sister that is struggling be destroyed because of that? And listen, every commentary that I read on this, they weren't, they, nobody could agree on what exactly Paul meant. What, what was he simply talking about somebody who was just who would who would just sin and and repent or was he talking all the way to the extreme of, of full destruction apostasy they don't know so I, I I looked at it and I said well I think what the Apostle Paul is trying to get at is its destruction of their conscience the thing that helps you to know, the, the thing that partners with the Holy Spirit that's in you, if you keep violating that thing, man, you, mess, you, you get messed up in the area of discernment. You get messed up in your ability to be able to say, this is true, this is false. This is right, this is wrong. That, that, that's, that, that, that's where I would land on this. Again, all the commentators, much older, much wiser, you know, much more studied than I am, they, they couldn't even agree. So, hey, I'm going to go ahead and throw my thought in there. Since Paul's talking about conscience, I'm going to say it would seem that the apostle is saying, I don't want you to destroy the conscience of your brother because of your freedom. So listen, let me give you just something real practical. There's some things you probably shouldn't post on social media. I'm just keeping 100 with you. Not because you want to be a fake Christian, no. Because you don't know the conscience of somebody else. The things that you're free to do, the things that you are just okay doing, man, you know, you can mess someone else up. Because they could see that and be like, oh, I can do that. No, you can't. They can't. For them, it's sin, 100%. And until they deal with God, if you start pushing that, so, you know, I, th I think we need to be careful. I think we need to be careful what we do with, with other Christians, I think we need to be careful. And I heard of a church, and listen, I want you to know something. I, I, could, I could get up here and I could argue um, from two positions. I could argue from the position where alcohol should be abstained from 100% of the time, and I could argue from another position, which is that, nope, that's not true. I could argue from both positions. But here's the thing. You know what I want to care about more than anything else? I want to care about my brothers and sisters. I want to be sure that I am not opening up the door. To say, hey, you know what, that's okay, because, you know, you may know how to have one beer, somebody else may not. For some people, let me tell you this clearly, for some people, one drink is too much. Can I get an amen? And you or I don't want to be a stumbling block. And there are some churches that, they're, hey, man, they're having a men's fellowship, and to draw the men in, hey, we're having beer. Yeah, really, that's manly, I guess. That, that, that'll attract people for sure. But can it also be a stumbling block to some people? Absolutely it can. So throw axes instead of drinking beer. I'm just saying. Hello. 
Do something else manly, right? Something else that, that will move you. But here's the thing. Our heart, these verses show us, our heart should always be what? Number one, to please the Lord. To seek his commendation. Food isn't how we do it. Love for others is. Sadly, our brand, our westernized Christianity has been so influenced by our rugged individualism that we have forgotten we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. Jesus warns us of putting a stumbling stone before our brothers. The death of Jesus is the motivation of our sacrificial love for our brothers. Hear me, church. Jesus died for that brother or that sister that you could be misleading. Think about that. Christ died. All of our motivation is what? Everything that we are motivated by is the gospel, is it not? The gospel, the reality of what Christ did for us. The fact that God created all things good. He created us for relationship with him. He created us to be in relationship. And because of our sin, we have been separated from him. Our relationship is broken. Apart from Christ, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you are a sinner who is separated from God, who is, who, who is under the condemnation and will experience eternal ramifications because of that separation. However, Jesus comes and dies. The scandal of the gospel is that our holy God who cannot be in fellowship or communion with sin, our holy God comes to earth, puts on flesh, lives among, amongst us, is tempted in every way possible and found without sin. He goes to the cross, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. He goes to the cross to carry our guilt, to carry our shame, to carry our sin. He dies and then rises again, showing us that he is the one true God. He is the one true God. He conquers death. And in that, what does he do? He offers us life, not based upon a death alone, but upon a resurrection that shows that he has power over all things. And when we come to him and when we put our faith in him, when we recognize our sinful inability to please him in our, own, in our own strength, in our own works, our God extends us grace and brings us into his family and covers us with his blood. That is the gospel that we believe in and that we trust. And Jesus died for each and every one of us so we could live for his glory. And here's the thing, when we, when you and I, don't think about the weaker conscience of our brother, and we just live our life how we want to live. We, we are literally taking for granted the sacrifice of Christ for them. Paul closes his thoughts. Verse 11, he says, And because of your knowledge shall your weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Shall his conscience be destroyed? Shall he be wrecked in his way of living for God because of your strength and your conscience? Verse 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You hear the weight of those words? 
when we sin against each other, when we offend one another, when we are dishonorable toward each other, we don't just sin against each other. We sin against Christ. We sin against our Lord. It's not just a person you're sinning against. You are sinning against the one who died for you. And he closes in verse 13, and he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul's like, man, I'll become a vegetarian. Someone said the devil is a liar. But Paul says, if food offends my brother, if food sacrificed to an idol offends my brother, I will never again eat it. I won't partake because I don't, because I love my brother more than I love meat. Let me say it like this. I love my brother more than I love me. So here's my closing question. Is there anything, is there anything you need to let go of to be a better brother's keeper? Bow your heads, please.